This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton. Section 12, Chapter 6, Part 3 The Philosopher. This clearing off of his last critical place we may classify as the first of the three facts which lead up to man and superman. The second of the three facts may be found, I think, in Shaw's discovery of Nietzsche. This eloquent sophist has an influence upon Shaw and his school which it would require a separate book adequately to study. By descent, Nietzsche was a Pole and probably a Polish noble, and to say that he was a Polish noble is to say that he was a frail, fastidious, and entirely useless anarchist, and is one of the best rhetoricians of the modern world. He had a remarkable power of saying things that master the reason for a moment by their gigantic unreasonableness, as, for instance, your life is intolerable without immortality, but why should not your life be intolerable? His whole work is shot through with the pangs and fevers of his physical life, which was one of extreme bad health, and in early middle age his brilliant brain broke down into impotence and darkness. All that was true in his teaching was this, that if a man looks fine on a horse, it is so far irrelevant to tell him that he would be more economical on a donkey or more humane on a tricycle. In other words, the mere achievement of dignity, beauty, or triumph is strictly to be called a good thing. I do not know if Nietzsche ever used the illustration, but it seems to me that all that is creditable or sound in Nietzsche could be stated in the derivation of one word, the word valor. Valor means valeur. It means a value. Courage is itself a solid good. It is an ultimate virtue. Valor is in itself valid. In so far as he maintained this Nietzsche, was only taking part in that great Protestant game of seesaw which has been the amusement of northern Europe since the sixteenth century. Nietzsche imagined that he was rebelling against ancient morality. As a matter of fact, he was only rebelling against recent morality, against the half-baked impudence of the utilitarians and the materialists. He thought he was rebelling against Christianity. Curiously enough, he was rebelling solely against the special enemies of Christianity, against Herbert Spencer and Mr. Edward Clodd. Historic Christianity has always believed in the valor of St. Michael riding in front of the church militant, and in an ultimate and absolute pleasure, not indirect or utilitarian, the intoxication of the spirit, the wine of the blood of God. There are indeed doctrines of Nietzsche that are not Christian, but then by an entertaining coincidence they are also not true. His hatred of pity is not Christian, but that was not his doctrine, but his disease. Invalids are often hard on invalids. And there is another doctrine of his that is not Christianity, and also by the same laughable accident, not common sense, and it is a most pathetic circumstance that this was the one doctrine which caught the eye of Shaw and captured him. 
He was not influenced at all by the morbid attack on mercy. It would require more than ten thousand mad Polish professors to make Bernard Shaw anything but a generous and compassionate man. But it is certainly a nuisance that the one Nietzsche doctrine which attracted him was not the one Nietzsche doctrine that is humane and rectifying. Nietzsche might really have done some good if he had taught Bernard Shaw how to draw the sword, to drink wine, or even to dance. But he only succeeded in putting into his head a new superstition, which bids fair to be the chief superstition of the dark ages which are possibly in front of us. I mean the superstition of what is called the Superman. In one of his least convincing phrases, Nietzsche had said that just as the ape ultimately produced the man, so should we ultimately produce something higher than the man. The immediate answer, of course, is sufficiently obvious. The ape did not worry about the man, so why should we worry about the superman? If the superman will come by natural selection, may we leave it to natural selection? If the superman will come by human selection, what sort of superman are we to select? If he is simply to be more just, more brave, or more merciful, then Zarathustra sinks into a Sunday school teacher. The only way we can work for it is to be more just, more brave, and more merciful. Sensible advice, but hardly startling. If he is to be anything else than this, why should we desire him? Or what else are we to desire? These questions have been many times asked of the Nietzscheites and none of the Nietzscheites have even attempted to answer them. The keen intellect of Bernard Shaw would, I think, certainly have seen through this fallacy and verbiage, had it not been that another important event about this time came to the help of Nietzsche, and established the Superman on his pedestal. It is the third of the things which I have called stepping stones to man and Superman, and it is very important. It is nothing less than the breakdown of one of the three intellectual supports upon which Bernard Shaw had reposed through all his confident career. At the beginning of this book I have described the three ultimate supports of Shaw as the Irishman, the Puritan, and the Progressive. They are the three legs of the tripod upon which the prophet sat to give the oracle, and one of them broke. Just about this time, suddenly, by a mere shaft of illumination, Bernard Shaw ceased to believe in progress altogether. It is generally implied that it was reading Plato that did it. That philosopher was very well qualified to convey the first shock of the ancient civilization to Shaw, who had always thought instinctively of civilization as modern. This is not due merely to the daring splendor of the speculations and the vivid picture of Athenian life. It is due also to something analogous to the personalities of that particular ancient Greek and this particular modern Irishman. Bernard Shaw has much affinity to Plato in his instinctive elevation of temper, his courageous pursuit of ideas as far as they will go, his civic idealism, and also, it must be confessed, in his dislike of poets and a touch of delicate inhumanity. But whatever influence produced the change, the change had all the dramatic suddenness and completeness which belongs to the conversions of great men. 
It had been perpetually implied through all the earlier works not only that mankind is constantly improving, but that almost everything must be considered in the light of this fact. More than once he seemed to argue, in comparing the dramatists of the sixteenth with those of the nineteenth century, that the latter had a definite advantage merely because they were of the nineteenth century and not of the sixteenth. When accused of impertinence toward the greatest of the Elizabethans, Bernard Shaw had said, Shakespeare is a much taller man than I, but I stand on his shoulders. An epigram which sums up this doctrine with characteristic neatness. But Shaw fell off Shakespeare's shoulders with a crash. This chronological theory that Shaw stood on Shakespeare's shoulders logically involved the supposition that Shakespeare stood on Plato's shoulders, and Bernard Shaw found Plato, from his point of view, so much more advanced than Shakespeare, that he decided in desperation that all three were equal. Such failure, as has partially attended the idea of human equality, is very largely due to the fact that no party in the modern state has heartily believed in it. Tories and radicals have both assumed that one set of men were, in essentials, superior to mankind. The only difference was that the Tory superiority was a superiority of place, while the radical superiority is a superiority of time. The great objection to Shaw being on Shakespeare's shoulders is a consideration for the sensations and personal dignity of Shakespeare. It is a democratic objection to anyone being on anyone else's shoulders. Eternal human nature refuses to submit to a man who rules merely by right of birth. To rule by right of century is to rule by right of birth. Shaw found this nearest kinsman in remote Athens, his remotest enemies in the closest historical proximity, and he began to see the enormous average and the vast level of mankind. If progress swung constantly between such extremes, it could not be progress at all. The paradox was sharp but undeniable. If life had such continual ups and downs, it was upon the whole flat. With characteristic sincerity and love of sensation, he had no sooner seen this than he hastened to declare it. In the teeth of all his previous pronouncements, he emphasized and re-emphasized in print that man had not progressed at all, that nineteen-nine hundredths of a man in a cave were the same as nineteen-nine hundredths of a man in a suburban villa. It is characteristic of him to say that he rushed into print with a frank confession of the failure of his old theory. But it is also characteristic of him that he rushed into print also with a new alternative theory quite as definite, quite as confident, and if one may put it so, quite as infallible as the old one. Progress had never happened hitherto because it had been sought solely through education. Education was rubbish. Fancy, said he, trying to produce a greyhound or a racehorse by education. The man of the future must not be taught, he must be bred. This notion of producing superior human beings by the methods of the stud farm had often been urged though its difficulties had never been cleared up. I mean its practical difficulties, its moral difficulties, or rather impossibilities. 
for any animal fit to be called a man need scarcely be discussed but even as a scheme it had never been made clear the first and most obvious objection to it of course is this that if you are to breed men as pigs you require some overseer who is as much more subtle than a man as a man is more subtle than a pig such an individual is not easy to find it was however in the heat of these three things the decline of his merely destructive realism the discovery of nietzsche and the abandonment of the idea of a progressive education of mankind that he attempted what is not necessarily his best but certainly his most important work the two things are by no means necessarily the same the most important work of milton is paradise loss his best work is lycidas there are other places in which shaw's argument is more fascinating or his wit more startling than in man and superman there are other plays that he has made more brilliant but i am sure that there is no other play that he wished to make more brilliant i will not say that he is in this case more serious than elsewhere for the word serious is a double meaning and a double dealing word a traitor in the dictionary it sometimes means solemn and it sometimes means sincere a very short experience of private and public life will be enough to prove that the most solemn people are generally the most insincere a somewhat more delicate and detailed consideration will also show that the most sincere men are generally not solemn and of these is bernard shaw but if we use the word serious in the old and latin sense of the word grave which means weighty or valid full of substance then we may say without any hesitation that this is the most serious play of the most serious man alive the outline of the play is i suppose by this time sufficiently well known it has two main philosophic motives the first is what he calls the life force the old infidels called it nature which seems a neater word and nobody knows the meaning of either of them desires above all things to make suitable marriages to produce a purer and prouder race or eventually to produce a superman the second is that in this effecting of racial marriage the woman is a more conscious agent than the man in short that woman disposes a long time before man proposes in this play therefore woman is made the pursuer and man the pursued it cannot be denied i think that in this matter shaw is handicapped by his habitual hardness of touch by his lack of sympathy with the romance of which he writes and to a certain extent even by his own integrity and right conscience whether the man hunts the woman or the woman the man at least it should be a splendid pagan hunt but shaw is not a sporting man nor is he a pagan but a puritan he cannot recover the impartiality of paganism which allows diana to propose to endymion without thinking any the worse of her the result is that while he makes anne the woman who marries his hero a really powerful and convincing woman he can only do it by making her a highly objectionable woman she is a liar and a bully not from sudden fear or excruciating dilemma she is a liar and a bully in grain she has no truth or magnanimity in her the more we know that she is real the more we know that she is vile 
In short, Bernard Shaw is still haunted with his old impotence of the unromantic writer. He cannot imagine the main motives of human life from the inside. We are convinced successively that Anne wishes to marry Tanner, but in the very process we lose all power of conceiving why Tanner should ever consent to marry Anne. A writer with a more romantic strain in him might have imagined a woman choosing her lover without shamelessness and magnetizing him without fraud. But if the first movement were feminine, it need hardly be a movement like this. In truth, of course, the two sexes have their two methods of attraction, and in some of the happiest cases they are almost simultaneous. But even on the most cynical showing, they need not be mixed up. It is one thing to say that the mousetrap is not there by accident. It is another to say, in the face of ocular experience, that the mousetrap runs after the mouse. But whenever Shaw shows the Puritan hardness, or even the Puritan cheapness, he shows something also of the Puritan nobility, of the idea that sacrifice is really a frivolity in the face of a great purpose. The reasonableness of Calvin and his followers will, by the mercy of heaven, be at last washed away, but their unreasonableness will remain an eternal splendor. Long after we have let drop the fancy that Protestantism was rational, it will be its glory that it was fanatical. So it is with Shaw. To make Anne a real woman, even a dangerous woman, he would need to be something stranger and softer than Bernard Shaw. But though I always argue with him, whenever he argues, I confess that he always conquers me in the one or two moments when he is emotional. There is one really noble moment when Anne offers for all her cynical husband hunting the only defense that is really great enough to cover it. It will not be all happiness for me, perhaps death. And the man rises also at that real crisis, saying, Oh, that clutch holds and hurts. What have you grasped in me? Is there a father's heart as well as a mother's? That seems to me actually great. I do not like either of the characters an atom more than formerly, but I can see shining and shaking through them at that instant the splendor of the God that made them and of the image of the God who wrote their story. A logician is like a liar in many respects, but chiefly in the fact that he should have a good memory. That cutting and inquisitive style which Bernard Shaw has always adopted carries with it an inevitable criticism, and it cannot be denied that this new theory of the supreme importance of sound sexual union wrought by any means is hard logically to reconcile with Shaw's old diatribes against sentimentalism and operatic romance. If nature wishes primarily to entrap us into sexual union, then all the means of sexual attraction, even the most maudlin or theatrical, are justified at one stroke. The guitar of the troubadour is as practical as the plowshare of the husbandman. The waltz in the ballroom is as serious as the debate in the parish council. The justification of Anne, as the potential mother of Superman, is really the justification of all the humbugs and sentimentalists whom Shaw had been denouncing as a dramatic critic and as a dramatist since the beginning of his career. It was to no purpose that the earlier Bernard Shaw said that romance was all moonshine. 
The moonshine that ripens love is now as practical as the sunshine that ripens corn. It was vain to say that sexual chivalry was all rot. It might be as rotten as manure and also as fertile. It is vain to call first love a fiction. It may be as fictitious as the ink of the cuttle or the doubling of the hair, as fictitious, as efficient, and as indispensable. It is vain to call it a self-deception. Schopenhauer said that all existence was a self-deception, and Shaw's only further comment seems to be that it is right to be deceived. To man and superman, as to all his plays, the author attaches a most fascinating preface at the beginning. But I really think that he ought also to attach a hearty apology at the end, an apology to all the minor dramatists or preposterous actors whom he had cursed for romanticism in his youth. Whenever he objected to an actress for ogling, she might reasonably reply, but this is how I support my friend Anne in her sublime evolutionary effort. Whenever he laughed at an old-fashioned actor for ranting, the actor might answer, My exaggeration is not more absurd than the tail of a peacock or the swagger of a cock. It is the way I preach the great fruitful lie of the life-force that I am a very fine fellow. We have remarked the end of Shaw's campaign in a favour of progress. This ought really to have been the end of his campaign against romance. All the tricks of love that he called artificial became natural, because they became nature. All the lies of love become truths, indeed they become the truth. The minor things of the play contain some thunderbolts of good thinking. Throughout this brief study I have deliberately not dwelt upon mere wit, because in anything of Shaw's that may be taken for granted. It is enough to say that this play, which is full of his most serious quality, is as full of any of his minor sort of success. In a more solid sense, two important facts stand out. The first is the character of the young American, the other is the character of Straker, the chauffeur. In these Shaw has realized and made vivid two most important facts. First, that America is not intellectually a go-ahead country, but both for good and evil an old-fashioned one. It is full of stale culture and ancestral simplicity, just as Shaw's young millionaire quotes Macaulay and piously worships his wife. Second, he has pointed out in the character of Straker that there has arisen in our midst a new class that has education without breeding. Straker is the man who has ousted the handsome cabman, having neither his coarseness nor his kindliness. Great sociological credit is due to the man who has first clearly observed that Straker has appeared. How anybody can profess for a moment to be glad that he has appeared, I do not attempt to conjecture. Appended to the play is an entertaining, though somewhat mysterious, document called The Revolutionist's Handbook. It contains many very sound remarks. This, for example, which I cannot too much applaud. If you hit your child, be sure that you hit him in anger. If that principle had been properly understood, we should have had less of Shaw's sociological friends and their meddling with the habits and instincts of the poor. But among the fragments of advice also occurs 
the following suggestive and even alluring remark every man over forty is a scoundrel on the first personal opportunity i asked the author of this remarkable axiom what it meant i gathered that what it really meant was something like this that every man over forty had been all the essential use that he was likely to be and was therefore in a manner a parasite it is gratifying to reflect that bernard shaw has sufficiently answered his own epigram by continuing to pour out treasures both of truth and folly long after this allotted time but if the epigram might be interpreted in a rather looser style as meaning that past a certain point a man's work takes on its final character and does not greatly change the nature of its merits it may certainly be said that with man and superman shaw reaches that stage the two plays that have followed it though of very great interest in themselves do not require any re-evaluation of or indeed any addition to our summary of his genius and success they are both in a sense casts back to his primary energies the first in a controversial and the second in a technical sense neither need prevent our saying that the moment when john tanner and anne agree that it is doom for him and death for her and life only for the thing unborn is the peak of his utterance as a prophet end of section twelve and of chapter six part three